um, every single time. And, and the reason we're refreshed when we're with you is because um, God's Word is central at Canyon Bible Church here in Prescott. We know that, and um, we are so blessed every time we get to hear Andrew um, or any of your pastors, or when we come to a conference. We were recently at your conference on depression, and it was so encouraging and helpful. But one of the other ways we're really refreshed here is just the pastoral care that is in this church family from the elders and from the pastors. It's just really, it's tender. Uh, your, your shepherds are tender and fearless, and, the, and sheep thrive under fearless and tender shepherds. So uh, it's just a privilege to be with you today. Um, as you can see in your title for this morning, we're going to talk about how perfections of Jesus Christ help conflict-prone disciples like me, and maybe you, if you're that way. I don't know if you are. Um, but we are just prone to conflict with one another, um, unfortunately. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you three main parts this morning in our sermon here, and we're going to start with the conflict-prone pattern of disciples. We'll let that kind of introduce um, us to that idea that we're conflict-prone and there's a pattern of it. Um, I'll illustrate that for you, and then we'll move on to the perfections of Jesus, secondly, and we'll just look at some of His characteristics, some of His attributes that can speak into our conflict-prone nature, and then thirdly, we'll finish up with a better pattern for disciples, a better pattern for you and me. Um, I need a better pattern. So let's start, number one, with the conflict-prone pattern of disciples. Let me paint for you what I believe is one of the most common ways that conflict unnecessarily arises in our relationships. And it starts this way. There's an error. It's a way you deal with trials or don't deal with trials well, whatever it is. And God sees it. And God sees that you, you lack some wisdom for it. You, you, you're ignorant, perhaps, of that arena of your life. You've neglected it, perhaps. You haven't brought God's Word to bear on it sufficiently yet. God does not think that's the totality of who you are. It's an arena of your life. But it needs to be addressed. This is where it all starts. And here is His masterful way of commonly bringing your attention to that arena of life and also how, un, how conflict unnecessarily arises in this. How does God help you see this area? Well, your brother or your sister or your spouse, or your parents. A pastor has experienced that of your life from their very limited, non-perspective. Their brother or your sister in Christ believes that needs to be addressed also. Here's what's going on. God, who sees that arena of your life perfectly, completely, He moves your very limited brother or sister who doesn't see it perfectly to come to you about it. Can you see where this can go? So your brother, your sister, your pastor has experienced that arena from very limited non-God perspective, and they're not omniscient. Your brother can't know the dimensions of that in your life. He can't know the boundaries or the measurements of this weakness or area of neglect or sin in your life. He can only feel the weight of that part of your life incompletely, maybe even with a distorted weight. He either doesn't give it enough weight or he has it way too much weight. And also, your, your brother's not omnipresent. 
Your brother hasn't been present in every situation of your life to see how often that arena of your weakness defines you. Can't see the frequency of it. It's beyond his knowledge. He lacks perspective on it. He lacks perspective on you, even though you may know each other really well. He has this weakness. That arena of, and when he does, it will be incomplete at best. This is all that you can get from any other Christian in your life. That's it. A non-God, non-omniscient, non-omnipresent approach and perspective on your life. That's all you can get. That's all I can get. That's all I can give you. That's all you can give me. Add to it, you're talking with your brother, you're your, your brother might get a little intense about the whole thing. You ever seen that? You ever been that way? A little passionate. And that feels disproportionate to you. That feels unwarranted. What is he so worked up about? What is unfolding before you is a passionate delivery of a concern that's a disproportion, a disfigurement, a distortion of what God actually sees and then it becomes difficult to listen to your brother. It becomes difficult to listen to your sister. And listen, that's just the delivery side of the scenario. Let's talk about how, how you, the very um, other limited non-God brother or sister, can respond. In that scenario, you become distracted. When you're listening to your brother bring this to you this way, you become very distracted almost immediately away from what the arena of the life is. You're distracted now by the spectacle that is your brother. You are increasingly tempted to, to be offended by him and by his ways. In fact, you, you even feel the need now to maybe put up a, a shield to a barrier to challenge him for him to get to it. And now your brother is very confident that he should be able to move you to his position. And there's an attempt now on both of your parts to start to try to control the conversation. You talk over each other, you talk more, you talk first, you look for him to take a breath and then you cut in and then you finish with all of your conversation. And it doesn't take long for you in that to compile a list of reasons why you're tempted to not listen to him anymore. It becomes too easy in times like that to turn it all back on him or on her. How unloving. How, how unaware. How judgmental. Certainly, he's ignorant. Well, of course he is. He's not God. He can't see it the way God sees it. And that, again, is all you can get from any brother or any sister in Christ. So your brother who tried to bring something to you now is stunned by your response. He didn't know you to be so unteachable. He didn't know you to be unapproachable, even dismissive. And he's not sure you've heard anything that he said. And then the meeting ends and distance grows between the two of you as you part. <laughs> you both start setting up protective boundaries against one another. 
the only thing that you were in agreement about is the problem is on in the other guy. Both of you are quickly losing sight of God and what he's doing, if you ever saw that to begin with. And at that point, unfortunately, the area of concern is now faded into the shadows. It's almost off limits. It's not even addressable. And, and by the way, these kinds of disagreements and conflicts that happen far too often, unfortunately, reveal to you in those moments the throne of your heart. And they reveal to you who is on that throne and maybe who shouldn't be on that throne. Who it is that's trying to be in control. And when you find yourself controlling the information, when you, try, when you find yourself trying to control the conversation, when you find yourself trying to control the one who's talking to you, that's God being very gracious to you to let you see the throne room of your heart and who's on it. And what started out maybe with good intentions too easily went wrong, and it happens far more often than it needs to. And God wants to, listen, beloved, God wants to use that very dynamic far more than you ever know in your life and in my life to make a stronger relationship. And so I want you to actually be encouraged by this kind of sad scenario I'm, I'm painting that I've seen happen in my own life far too often. This means that our relationships, because this does happen, it means our relationships have been designed by God in the gospel to be conflict-hardy. Vive things like this. If not, God wouldn't have put us in these kind of scenarios with one another. But He is at work in this process. We just lose sight of Him because we become puffed up and we block each other's view of Christ. So in light of that scenario... Let me ask you some questions. How should you approach your brother with your concern about him? You, you see something in your brother. How should you go to him? How should you prepare the path for your brother who wants to come to you with a concern? What should you remember about him as you meet? What should he remember about you while you meet? And what must both of you remember about God as you meet? How should you listen to your non-God, non-omniscient, non-omnipresent brother as he expresses concerns to you? Here's a question. Do you have to listen to him? What's the answer? You do. You do. How can you listen then in a way that assures him that you heard? And, and what if the first delivery of all of this doesn't go so well? Where does that leave you? Are we in Matthew 18 now? Oof. How do you end a meeting held by two limited non-God brothers who both can't see each other completely and who are struggling to see what God is doing in that conversation? Well, that's the conflict-prone pattern of disciples. It's my observation of my own life. It's my observation of pastoral ministry in 25 years. It's my observation of helping missionary teams on, a, on the field in, in conflict and what happens. And now let's turn to number two, the perfections of Jesus. Let, let's take our eyes off of that and let's put our eyes on Christ. <laughs> well, how refreshing this will be, I, I pray. Jesus interacted with thousands upon thousands of people. And in every interaction with every person before him, he had absolutely no limitations on him whatsoever. 
He had the perfect ability to see what was, he was dealing with right in front of him. He had perfect power to control any relationship dynamic that was unfolding in front of him. He had perfect knowledge of those in front of him. Did he ever assess anyone in front of him incompletely? Never, not even once. So let's talk first about the perfect power of Jesus, then we'll move to the perfect knowledge of Jesus, and then we'll look at the perfect assessment that Jesus can make because He has perfect knowledge and He has perfect power. Here's the perfect power of Jesus. Jesus had no limitations ever regarding His power to control and overcome whatever was in front of Him. There are far too many texts for us to turn to, so I'm just going to kind of list some ways. I'll give you some chapters in your Gospels that you can look at, and what I would encourage you um, is to maybe next time you read the Gospels, make two columns, power and knowledge, and just make a list of all of the ways that Jesus has perfect power. And all of the ways he had perfect knowledge of people in front of him and ask God to take those two columns and for you to move them into how you should think about how you do relationships. You'd be astounded at the ways it will give you insight. Here's the perfect power of Jesus. There was no illness, there was no disability, there was no paralysis, there was no blindness, there was no demonic possession that ever even once posed a challenge to his power. A lifetime of blindness evaporated before his power to heal in John chapter 9. Twelve years of internal bleeding for one woman in Luke 8, and 18 years of demonic deformity for another woman, both were gone in an instant by his power, Luke 13. Even demonic possession measured with the unit of measurement called a Roman army legion. 6,000 demonic infantry soldiers in one man, gone with the word in Luke 8. Entrenched, perplexing, stubborn, besetting sins, seemingly unmovable character flaws and hopeless conditions, oppressions of every kind, both physical and spiritual, were no challenge whatsoever for Jesus, ever. And distance between him and where the problem was was no problem at all. He did not have to be present to heal with his power. With just an assuring word from Jesus, a centurion's slave could go back home and he could discover that his slave was healed at the very hour Jesus spoke, Luke 7. Distance was no obstacle to Jesus' power. The forces of Power and forces and power of creation were no obstacle for him. A terrified fisherman in a boat in the midst of a raging storm saw wind and waves obey the voice of Jesus Christ, Luke 8, Mark 6. Wine and food came out of nowhere or out of water when he desired, John 2, Mark 6, and Mark 8. Jesus never faced anything that tested the limits of his power. Not even death could draw a line in the sand and say, you can't cross over here, Jesus. But time and time again, his power easily crossed over the line into the realm of the dead, grabbed death by the throat, and drug it back across into life. No perimeter of exclusion could ever be drawn to keep his power out. And the exercise of his perfect power was only ever coupled with mercy and compassion and gentleness, and love. Jesus never exercised his power from frustration or impatience or sinful anger. 
His power goes forth to heal, and he calls that paralytic son who is lowered down from the roof, he calls him son or child. He called the unclean, bleeding woman who touched his garment and was healed, he called her daughter. Mark 5. The exercise of his power and authority made sinners want to come nearer to him. A sinful woman wept on his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Luke 7. They fell before him, humbled. They were loved by this one who was powerful. He never chided them for from his position of power. He only ever encouraged them from his exercise of power toward them. He said things to them like, take courage. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Now, why is it important to preach Jesus' perfect power to yourself when you're in conflict with a brother? What difference can that make? Remember, conflict will reveal the throne of your heart, and it will reveal who wants the power to control the disagreement and the conflict. And in the midst of conflict, you and I have some choices to make when we feel that we're losing control. My puny power to control becomes intoxicating at that moment. Whose power to control do you want your brother to feel in that moment? Yours or Christ's? In your relationships with one another in the body, you will face seemingly entrenched perplexing, annoying habits and predispositions in each other. And from your brotherly position of impotence, of puny power, everything in your brother's life is entrenched and immovable. You can't change him. You can't change her. You can't even change yourself in your own puny power. Do you want your teammate, do you want your brother, do you want your spouse to feel your desperation as you in futility exercise puny power to control? Or do you want to pause in the moment and remind both of you how every entrenched physical and spiritual malady anybody ever faced was no challenge at all for Jesus Christ? That would be a good moment. And, And let's talk about distance. When your difficult meeting ends and you both leave one another and distance grows between you both, at that point you are tempted to anxiety and become even more, as you become more aware that you have absolutely no control over what just happened and what's about to go happen. You can't control how they are thinking about the conversation and disagreement you just had. You can't control who they'll talk to and how they'll represent it. You can't set any boundaries or limitations. You can't put a stop to anything from that distance. And Jesus was never in that powerless position that you were always in. That's good news. So set your eyes on Him in your conflict. Trust Him with the distance that you feel because distance never weakened His power at all. And boy, how how differently do I wield my puny power compared to how Jesus exercised His power. 
In the midst of conflict, when we're tempted to control what is happening, when, you know, when we're clawing for control of the narrative and control of the conversation, we, we talk first, we try to limit their input, we want to speak last and most. When we're clawing for which evidence can be admitted into this courtroom of conflict about this arena of my life, listen, mercy and love and gentleness are not usually emanating from us. And when we express our puny power and control in conflict, our brothers don't want to draw nearer to us. They, they actually avoid us. Do you remember how different Jesus was and is with his power? They fell at his feet. Ah, oh, man, we, you, you don't want to be the one with power in conflict. You're not. You don't even want to be deceived into it. One more thought in regards to Jesus' power. The storm on the sea is raging. He's sleeping. He's trying to calm down his terrified disciples, Mark 5. Desperate sinners are pressing in on him in a crowd, just trying to touch him, and he's, he's never panicking. He's never fretful. He's just pausing. Who is it who touched me? He wanted to care for that one. Everything else could stop, Mark 5. This man of power was settled. He was never frazzled in his power. Crowds have been listening to him for hours and hours, and now there's no food for him, and Jesus is not freaking out. Mark 6 and 8. What's the point? The one with all power to control everything in front of him was always steady with that power, centered with that power. He was never frantic, never panicky, never anxious, never fretful, never bewildered. He's at peace with his power. He's God. And you and I were just not created to be the ones with power in control. And when we don't, when we do exercise our power, we don't become more calm. We don't become more centered as we claw for our power to control the conflict. Have you ever noticed how anxious you are as you try to control what you can't control? We lose our ability to stay centered and we do become frantic and bewildered. And when we express power to control, peace is not emanating from us. We're just not like Jesus. And you know what? Our brothers and sisters feel that and they experience that when we try to control our conflict and it doesn't help. So in your conflict, the throne of power will be revealed, and you will see it clearly, both of you will, as you realize that you cannot control each other, and that moment is truly a grace from God to you both. When He allows you to see yourself scrambling for the throne, and we have a choice at that point, we, a correction can be made at that point. Stop yourselves and remind each other of who is worthy to be on the throne with power and control. And it's neither one of you. It's Jesus. There's the perfect power of Jesus. Let's look at the perfect knowledge of Jesus. Now, turn to John chapter 9. You're wondering, is he ever going to open the Bible? <laughs> yes, we are. We're going to look at these. John chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Let's talk about the perfect knowledge of Jesus. Jesus had no limitations in regards to what he knew was going on in front of him. And when people were before him, he could see wrong thinking. Let's look first at wrong thinking right in front of him. John chapter 9. 
He knew it perfectly. Look at John 9, verses 1 and 2. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? The disciples saw this man. They've assessed this blind man. And two categories in their very knowledgeable minds exist for this man. Did the man sin or did his parents sin that he would be born blind? And Jesus says, wrong. Neither. Neither on both accounts. Listen, they categorized the blind man wrong twice. What they thought they knew as categories were not applicable categories at all for the situation that they saw. And this is what we do with one another. And to each other, more often than we should, we assess one another in conflict, in trials, in whatever. We do this in our parenting. We do this with our spouses. We confidently come up with the categories of what we know to be the only options. And yet, how many times have you been proven wrong? Have I been proven wrong? It's like this is, I can't shake this. I can't stop believing my own assessments. Heaven will be so good when we can do that finally. Go to Matthew chapter 20. Let's look at another time when he could see wrong thinking right in front of him. Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Matthew 20, verse 20. Then the, mother's, uh, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons. So here comes mom with the two boys. Bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. So here's the mother of James and John. She makes a request of positions of power for her sons. And Jesus says, look at these words. You do not know what you're asking. You don't know. Just let that ring in your ears. You don't know. You don't. And this is what disciples do. We, we trust what we know. We trust what we know to be best. We believe we have reasonable, justifiable requests. And instead, our knowledge is proven to have major holes and gaps in them. And that will only complicate our conflicts. Let's go to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. This is a great story of Luke 11, verses 27 and 28. A mother in Israel is listening to Jesus. Luke 11, verse 27. Now, it happened that while Jesus was saying these things, he's been preaching, and one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him out loud, she wanted everybody in the crowd to hear this, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. A mother in Israel is impressed by the teaching of Jesus that she has just heard. She knows what needs to be said at this moment. And in that moment, there's a relationship she believes is worth noting. Everyone needs to hear her perspective. Everyone needs to be brought into the inner circle of her wisdom and her knowledge that she sees. And she basically says, blessed is the mother relationship to this son. The mother of this child is blessed. What a blessing she is. And what are the words out of Jesus' mouth in verse 28? On 
the contrary. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. She says what she says, and out loud he says, actually not. Actually not. It is almost comical, isn't it? He wouldn't enter into her circle of knowledge regarding Mary's greatness. He, he knows the most important relationship with the greatest blessing is with those who hear the word of God and do it. But this is what we do. We think we know the right stuff in what is right before us. And in conflict, this really becomes troublesome. In conflict, we often are impressed with our circle of knowledge that we believe we have, but we should learn to second guess it more. How humbling would it be in conflict to declare before everybody, this is what I think and this is what should be done, only to hear Jesus from heaven say, on the contrary. Oof. Go back to Luke chapter 10. Let's look at Mary and Martha. This is stunning. Luke chapter 10, verse 38 and 39. Martha was on task, you know, hosting and from Martha, um, yeah, Martha was on task, and, and from Martha's perspective, perspective, Mary was not where she needed to be. Verse 38, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home, and she had a sister called Mary who was also seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. And Martha takes control. Or, or she wants to be in control of Mary. Look at verse 40. But Martha was distracted with all of her preparations, and she came up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the preparations alone? Tell her to help me. She doesn't even think that Jesus sees the situation right. The one clawing for control of the situation has made a demand. And Jesus says, Martha, you are such a blessing to everyone around you in this room right now. Now, that's not what he said, right? What did he say? Look at verse 41. Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you who are trying to control this, you are worried and bothered about so many things. Only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken from her. That's, that's a rebuke to Martha. I will not let you, Martha, take from her what she has chosen. Wow. Jesus simply was not in agreement with Martha's knowledge and assessment. Jesus will not help um, Mary, the way that Martha wants her to be controlled, Martha thought she was seeing the whole thing rightly. She couldn't imagine another scenario that was more accurate than her own, and she wasn't right. And she was not a blessing to anybody around her. But Mary should value what I value, she thought. Put that kind of disposition into conflict and you will only trouble your trouble more. And this is what we unfortunately do with one another. We trust what we think is right. And if others would just affirm our viewpoint, everything would go so much better. Listen, Jesus sees us. He sees how worried and bothered we are with one another. Jesus perfectly assessed Martha. He perfectly assessed Mary. He perfectly assesses me. And he perfectly assesses you. 
Not only, though, did Jesus see the wrong thinking in front of him, go back to Luke chapter 7. He saw the good in front of him that was on display. Luke chapter 7, verse 2. This is that centurion's faith. He has a slave who is very sick and dying back home. And after hearing the centurion's way of thinking about authority and submission in verses 6 through 8, Jesus in verse 9 says this, when Jesus heard this, he marveled at the centurion, a Gentile, and he turned to the crowd that was following him. He said, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Think about that. The one who created everything, it wants to tell everybody this from a Roman soldier is great faith. He saw it perfectly. Jesus sees and he knows the good thinking that you have and that your brother has when you are trying to help each other in your sanctification. He sees it. It does not escape him. If it mattered enough to Jesus to point it out on earth when he saw it, it's not any less significant to him now at the right hand of the throne of God. He sees good things in front of him. Go to Mark chapter 2, verse 5. Let's look at the friends lowering their brother or their friend through the roof so that he can be placed right in front of Jesus. Mark chapter 2, verse 5. The friends bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus. They tear out the ceiling. They lower him down right in front of Jesus. And what does Jesus see perfectly? And what does he know perfectly? Verse 5, Jesus seeing their what? Faith. He could see it. This faith is being exercised right in front of him. And notice what he says, child or son. He's tender in this moment. And he knows what nobody else in that room can see at that moment. And he knows what that paralyzed friend needs to hear more than anything. It's this. Your sins are forgiven. They are. Evidently, this paralytic needed assurance that his sins were forgiven. Child, your sins are forgiven. Jesus knows you perfectly, and he knows your brother perfectly. He can see what you can't see, and he can see what your brother can't see who's trying to help you. You see what you see, and you know what you think you know. Just don't draw an equal sign between that and what Jesus sees in those because it's not equal, ever. I need to learn to be far more suspicious of what I think I see and what I think I know. Remember Jesus. So with perfect power and with perfect knowledge like this, what does it mean? It means, thirdly, Jesus had perfect assessments of everyone in front of him. Go to John chapter 2 and we'll close with this passage. John chapter 2, verse 23. Jesus had perfect assessments of everyone before him. John 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw his signs which he was doing. I'm sure his disciples saw that too, and I bet they had an opinion about what they saw in the crowd, what they believed they knew about the crowd in those early days towards Jesus. Can you imagine Peter? Would have been amazing to hear that conversation. 
But what are we told about Jesus and the way he assessed the people in front of him? Look at verse 24. But Jesus, in contrast, stark contrast to the crowd, on his part was not entrusting himself to them. John is isolating. He's separating Jesus away from the rest. Jesus really had no interest in entrusting himself to the way that people around him were thinking. Thinking about him, even. It's not trustworthy. Why was it not trustworthy? Verse 24, because he knew all men. And notice Jesus also didn't need to turn to the disciples in this moment in Jerusalem and say, hey guys, everybody guys, huddle up, come in close. Um, I need some perspective here. I think I need some balance on what is developing in front of us here with the crowd. How, how do you guys read this situation? I'd like to take your 12 data points and add them to my data point. What's your take on what's happening in the crowd? Look at verse 25. And... Because right here, he had no need that anyone bear witness concerning man. He had no need for it. He didn't have to turn to his disciples. He wasn't in need to figure out what was going on. He had no need for anyone's testimony about what man was doing in response to him in Jerusalem. Again, why? How does verse 25 end? The same way it ended in verse 24, except even more emphatically, for he himself knew what was in man. Stunning. With his limitless power, with his perfect knowledge, that meant every time he assessed people in front of him, he had perfect assessments every time, all the time. He was never struggling to read what was going on. He was never guessing. He was never going on a hunch. And here's the blunt truth that I need to hear this morning. Jesus is still not benefiting from my take on my relationships that I'm in. He has no need of my testimony to help him. That's just the blunt reality because he's perfect in knowledge and he's perfect in power and he's everywhere all the time and he sees it, he knows it. So let's talk about then a better pattern. If we, if we are conflict prone in our pattern of living with each other, what is a better pattern for disciples? Can I give you first just maybe what, what, what the goal is not here with this study? What is not the goal? The goal is not this, that I will say, well, I'm never going to step forward into conflict again because I know nothing and Jesus knows everything, and I'll just be wrong. That is not the goal, right? Because Jesus knows everything and has perfect power to control my relationship, and because I don't have perfect knowledge and perfect control, I'm staying out of conflict. No, that's not the goal. What is the goal? As I step toward my brother or my sister or my spouse or my kids, it's that I will be less impressed with me and what I think I know. That's the goal. That's the goal. What is the goal in conflict? I want less confidence in me and what I think I know. 
The goal in conflict is to stop trying to control it. That's the goal. Stop trying to control the information. Stop trying to control the evidence, the narrative, the data, the conversation, my brother, my sister, my wife, my kids. The goal is to submit my limited assessments of what I think is going on under Christ's perfect assessment and then gladly abandon it when I'm proven wrong. That's the goal. And what I, what I and you, what we just need to accept sooner than later is that the only instruments that God can use in my life and in your life and in our conflict are other servants and brothers and sisters and spouses who are struggling to put their limited knowledge and their desire to control under the lordship of Jesus. That's who we all are. And we are called to live with one another and approach one another from that limited perspective. God wants to use it far more than you and I ever know. So what's a better pattern? Let me just lay out to you a a potential scenario, something of the spirit like this. Let's say you have to go to your brother or sister and address an area. You're the one going. What if you said things like this? What if he heard from you? What if she heard from you things like this first? Um, Brother, I am greatly limited in what I think I've seen in your life and what I think I know about this area of your life. I'm really limited. And um, I'm sure I feel it out of proportion without proper dimensions to what it actually is in your life. And if you start to feel like I'm like overstating it, would you tell me? I feel like such a liability to you right now as I'm trying to help you. I feel like I'm blind and I'm groping at something in your life and I just can't get perspective on it. And I know myself too well, brother, that there may be times in my conversation when, when, I, when I'll probably try to control the conversation and I don't want to do that. Would you help me to be aware of that when I do that? And here's something else I know. I know that Jesus loves you and I know he sees you perfectly and he sees all of your right thinking in this area of your life and he knows all of your good responses and he knows the bad too. And he is more impressive for us both to focus on as we talk and work through this area of your life. He is powerful over every area of our sanctification and when he wields his power for change, it's always coupled with mercy and love and we will only wanna draw nearer to him as he does that. And here's my goal in this conversation, brother, throughout the conversation and at the end, here's my goal, I want you to be far more aware of Jesus than me. Maybe something like that. Let's turn that on its head. Let's say your brother or sister is now coming to you to talk to you about an area of your life. Maybe something like this. What could you say? Hey, brother, before you start, I know that I struggle even to assess my own heart accurately. And so I just want you to know, brother, I actually need you. I need you. And I know that you're not omniscient in this area of my life or any area of my life, neither am I. I know you probably can't measure the dimensions of this area of my life and how pervasive it is or not, but here's what I do know. You are God's chosen instrument to come and help me. And I just want you to know that in this conversation, knowing that you are limited, 
I am not going to put the burden on you to get it right in order for me to listen to you. That would be a completely unrealistic expectation on you, brother, and I don't want to do that. I know you can see this only in part. Therefore, I know that you can only describe it in part, and therefore, I will not dismiss your limited perspective because it falls short of perfection. I'll listen to you to try to understand what you're addressing. And I will labor hard to to find the nugget or the nuggets that God wants me to consider. And friend, when we are done, I want you to walk away more aware of Jesus than me. And I also want you to walk away believing that I've truly heard you. Maybe something like that. Both of you completely just disarmed one another and you'll be much more tender towards one another. You take the pressure off of one another. Teachability rises, pride falls. All because of the difference that the perfections of Jesus can make when we're aware of them. His perfect power controlling his disciples, his unimpeded perfect knowledge of me and you, his impressive ability to perfectly assess our conflict and disagreements, all of that can make a huge difference in our conflict if we will just put our eyes on him more than on ourselves. For our marriages, for our parenting, just for our fellowship together. Will you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, how refreshing it is to put our eyes on you and look at you and see you for who you truly are. There is no one like you. Nothing stumps your power. No one can impede your power. Your knowledge is perfect in every situation, and you do not need my insights to operate more faithfully and more fully. Lord, I pray for us as your children that we would um, put our eyes upon you more, that maybe you would light uh, a fire of interest and curiosity and worship again of looking for you in the Gospels in this way and just marveling at who you are and how you operated with people and believers and unbelievers in front of you. Lord, we, we want to be like you in that. And Lord, perhaps even this morning you have brought conviction of heart to someone who um, is struggling in this way. And Father, they may feel the sting of um, the rebuke of your word. And I pray for them, Father, that they would see your nearness also to come and to bind up the wound, and to strengthen, and to help map out a new step and a new pathway in life of dealing with others. Oh, it is good to be under your care. Lord, help us to make it better to be under one another's care in the body. This is what we want. We would stand out in this world. We would be light in a new way, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.